ideas and new technology are causing seismic shifts in the media industry. Where are we headed? What does it mean? Keep listening. Media strategist Gabriella Mirabelli talks with the brightest minds in entertainment and business. Meet the innovators, the risk takers, and the disruptors on the front lines of change from Hollywood, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and beyond. The future is coming to a screen near you. Are you ready? This is the Up Next podcast with Gabriella Mirabelli. Welcome to Up Next. I'm your host, Gabriella Mirabelli. My guest today is Eric Strafel. He's the CEO and founder of the consulting firm Summit which helps businesses grow profits and scale innovation with mission-driven purpose. He's the author of the book, The Frontline CEO, and is joining us today to talk about the power of leading from the frontline. Eric, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks, Gabriel. Happy to be here. At the top of your book, you mentioned that the tenure of firms in the Fortune 500 cohort is shrinking. Only 51 have been in the group since 1995, and this trend is forecast to accelerate because as with all things, we're living in a time of exponentially accelerating change. And it's this shifting economic landscape that creates the urgency behind your book's message. Quite simply, old methods of hierarchy and leadership might have worked in the past, but they aren't up to the agile needs of today's marketplace, which of course leads to the thesis of your book and the type of leadership that is adaptive enough to not only survive, but thrive in this landscape. And that is of a frontline CEO, The view from 60,000 feet, what is a frontline CEO? The thought is that the bigger you get as a company, potentially the slower you move. And so as you add layers to the organization, how do you not slow yourself down? And, And the way to do that is to compress those layers and keep the work, the decisions, the data, the information on the front lines, just like you were as, you know, every every company started small. And when you started small, you had information and decisions connected to where the work gets done. As you add layers, you're adding Uh, you're adding space in between decisions and actions and where the work is done. And so if you can compress that and work as the CEO and the top leadership uh, in the company on the front lines, where you're constantly engaged and connected with employees that are doing the work, making decisions, serving customers, then you can close the gap in communication. You can minimize the risk of any misinterpretation and you can just move a lot faster. And so the frontline CEO is about flipping the traditional organization on its head, really and pushing decisions and information down rather than it having to flow up for decisions to be made and then flow back down for action. Your book goes into a lot of detail. But for purposes of our conversation, I'm going to focus in on leadership from the front line and how it works. And at the core is your belief in what the concept of leadership really is. So let's start there. What is leadership? So I like to define leadership in a way that people can avoid. Okay, that's good. So how I do that, which is maybe a little bit different, is leadership is solving a problem and bringing people with you. That could be a problem in your household, in your community, in your local place of worship, whatever that is, pick a problem or something that you think can get better, grab a couple people to work on it with, and you're leading. 
Mm-hmm. Right. So that mm-hmm. that's how I like to define leadership. You're you're bringing people with you in an organization, in a more traditional setting. Leadership turns into more coaching and serving others these days. If you're going to follow the frontline leadership model, mm-hmm. which is pushing information down and empowering your team. And uh, and, you know, I always asked uh, people on my team what inspires you. And, and I would share what inspires me and what kind of leader do I follow? And it's two things. It's a leader that has such a strong purpose and conviction and what they're doing that I want to follow them, or it's a leader that believes in me. Right. And so, you know, that that's how I think about leadership. Right. Well, it's interesting. In in the book, you set out a series of three questions, choices people should be asking themselves as service to others. And the second is, are you going to follow the path of others or are you going to create a new path building upon the work of others that came before you and and leveraging your unique strengths and shapes by your own values. And I just want to make sure I understand, does that mean that you're open to creating a new path or that you should absolutely create a new path? I mean, we don't want to be recreating wheels. When you talk about forging your own path, being ready to do that, what are you keeping? What are you throwing away? What are you doing? Yeah, I'd say that if if there's one thing I would want people to take away in terms of what's important as you get into bigger and bigger leadership roles is to be yourself. Hmm, okay. I, when I came into leadership in the late nineties and early two thousands, I, I came up where I felt like I needed to fit a mold and that mold is what I saw in other leaders that was very hierarchical, right? Not, not as much transparency as, as I think we need today. Hmm. And and I lost sight of my values and who I was to the point where I, you know, I didn't talk about anything outside of work uh, as a leader. Hmm, and yeah. as I realized that that wasn't authentic, it wasn't authentic to me. What's important to me is family. And so I, I started to talk about family as I figured that out at work. Um, I like to do all kinds of activities. I'm passionate about my community. And, I, and the more I was myself, the better leader I could be. And so what that means is, just be yourself as a leader. And, and yes, you, there are integrity and respect and honesty. That Those are core fundamental values of a good citizen that everybody should follow. But you shouldn't give up who you are as an individual in what your strengths are and what makes you your best. If that's what makes you a great leader. And that's why I, I think everybody can be a great leader, but you have to be yourself. And you have to understand what your values are and how you can apply those into what works for you. And if you can do that, which is not easy, mm. then you can be a great leader too. So that that's what I mean by that. Find your own path. Well, so, yeah. So there's a degree of explore and understand yourself, self-knowledge there. Yeah. And that's not an easy thing to do. It sounds easy, easy to write down, but it, it is an exercise that requires some thought. You also talk about being committed to making the organization more inclusive. And, and you mentioned just earlier in our conversation, the, the importance of transparency with information and reducing complexity and access for everyone. Now, is inclusivity the natural outcome of those things, or are there other things that need to happen too? So I think when we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, I think at least 10 years ago, we got stuck on diversity, which can just be a numbers game. Right, right. So just because you have a diversity, it's check the box, yep. Where inclusivity requires actually listening to Mm. a different way to do things that you might not have seen before and giving it a chance. 
and allowing that person to try it and maybe fail and then getting their back if they do so that they can learn from that. Or maybe you can learn from that. Right. And as a leader. And so listening and applying different points of view is what I see as inclusivity. And oftentimes that means trying something that you haven't seen before because it is from a background or perspective or set of experiences that is different from yours as a leader. Well, right. Going back, though, I want to talk a little bit about transparency. I've encountered a lot of leaders who talk about transparency a lot, but then they also have a lot of secrets. You know, there there are a lot of need to knows that go on. So are there times when it's okay not to be transparent? If the audience is listening, how should they feel about transparency? How much transparency? How should they feel about transparency? I think the biggest challenges are if you're a public company or even if you're not, the financial information is typically where people are unsure of where to draw the line. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, I look at transparency is there, there should be clear line of sight up and down the organization on where you're going and the why behind decisions and actions that you're taking. And that that means you have to talk about the state of the business and how you're doing. You have to talk about where you're investing your time and money in in why so that people can get behind that. And you have to talk about the roles that you expect people to play, uh, setting expectations up and down the organization and and aligning priorities for everybody. Mm. And what that looks like is Instead of maybe your, uh, you know, your P&L, your financial reporting that you report out to the street or to investors, um, you may not, might not be able to get really granular, but you should be able to talk about gross margin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you should be able to talk about how you're allocating your cash mm-hmm. and what your strategy is behind the money that you're spending uh, for every investment line item, because your, your strategy I, I view as how you spend your time and money. And so if right. you... If you just look at what are you spending your money on and be transparent about what that is and why, that's the type of transparency that I think we we have to get to so that when you get a couple steps down the road and that doesn't work out how you thought it would, which it won't, other people know why you know what the intent was and they can go in and fix that for you. Well, also, I suppose if you know the intent, you can answer you can make decisions in situations that haven't been specified because you know the intent, you know the exactly. spirit. Now. One of the things, though, is transparency also has to do with swiftness of revealing that information, doesn't it? In terms of, you know, there's a timeliness to transparency. And I think maybe that's another thing that and this probably is more a function of private companies. Uh, They can be large. They're still private where they don't have to reveal things to the wider world. And they sure they're transparent eventually. (laughs) So if you were to advise some leaders or even down the line, you're within a team, how soon do you share information when you get the information? Because it empowers those people to know that the spirit, the drive behind it, the why, how they can answer questions before they come to them, or is it okay to sit on stuff for a while? How, How do you deal with that? The quicker, the better. And the faster that you're moving or growing as a company, the more frequently I think you have to communicate. The one pause is it's important that the leadership team is aligned. And so if there are mm-hmm. whatever actions there are, get the leadership team aligned first. And if that takes days or a week, you know, it's worth taking that time because the the rest of the organization is only as aligned as the leadership team. It, they can right. only be worse, you know, a couple levels worse than that. So get aligned. Right. And then, you know, the, the example that I, I talk about in the book at, uh, at Avial 
we had seven layers of leadership and I didn't feel like we were communicating fast enough to the frontline managers. We had about 200 managers around the world. And so I ended up getting on a monthly call with all managers and talking about the state of the business and uh, pulling other managers on the call to share what they were doing and to support our initiatives. And in that monthly cadence for everybody on one call is what I felt like I needed versus a quarterly town hall, which a lot of companies do, and then flowing down through all the levels of the organization, which takes another three months. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That that all takes time. So I cut to the chase, everybody on one call every single month and uh, repeat, 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 state of the business. How are we doing? Where are we going next? And then uh, just keep going. Is that something you, you would keep up or would you eventually not have to? I mean, I can see, yeah, you wanted to get everybody aligned, but was it just there's simply span of control, too many layers of management, you needed to disintermediate it, and that's just how it had to be permanently? I, I wonder if you're in the scrum in the middle, how do you feel about yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, it was it was really, it was all about speed, and those calls were only a half hour. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah, so it so wasn't the, it wasn't the death march call at this. No, no. <laughs> you know? And what I will say is the the more we got into so, you know, 6 9 months in, I talked less in other other managers talked more. And what right. they because everybody was had clarity on where they were going, it was more around what are the issues people are running into and how can we learn from each other as we're trying to address those. And so th- that is the transition that happened as I talked right. less. Right. That makes sense. Your approach to leadership is all about empowering frontline workers, and it's something that's talked about a lot of the time, uh, but it isn't always done well. I mean, obviously, as, as we've discussed already, and when it's done poorly, you mentioned in your book, it can result in a kind of a shambolic situation where there isn't any cohesion, which we've just talked about. Why do they fail? Even with the best of intentions, what do you think is the culprit? And so that people can be on the lookout for that culprit. Yeah, I think it. It, it takes time and uh, in repetition. And so frontline leadership, the, the way that we've, we measured our success is, do we, were we sharing enough context and, and clarity about everybody's role in the company so that everybody can make generally the same decision that any of us as top leaders would make? Okay. And if everybody's got the same information so that they can make similar, the same type of decision within a certain range anywhere in the company, then we're doing a job of empowering. And so what that takes is a, a, a persistence in communication. You can't communicate for a few months and then take a month off. That totally right. disrupts everything. And then it becomes the flavor of the month and people aren't fully committed and bought in. It's a it's consistency and repetition over time, every week, every month, same thing. People know what to expect. And, uh, you know, I'm a huge fan of the book, Atomic Habits. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Is that is that repetition over time to build the habits into your business to empower, and once you get there, it just takes off. So, so hang in there is a, is another message because if you're trying to do this and you feel like it's failing or not grabbing gear quickly enough, I suspect that the impulse is to clamp down, which then you know would just ruin all the hard work that had gone on. So if it doesn't seem to be happening. What should you be looking for? What, where are the typical sticking points, the typical trouble spots? Or yeah, is it purely really communication? Yeah, a lot of it is uh, people understanding the role and expectation. Okay. And so I, what I, not everybody's ready to be in, 
empowered or don't know what it looks like, right? It's uncomfortable for everybody. And so I would go out to different sites around the world and say, hey, I'd I'd really love you to run this branch like your own business, right? So it's five or 10 people in a branch. And it was new to a lot of people. (laughs) Like, okay, what do you mean but run it like my business? This is this this is a big company. And uh, so I I I tried to describe what I felt like let's pick two or three key metrics. And you are fully accountable to make decisions to to drive performance around these metrics, around serving customers and, you know, driving a healthy business and engaging employees were generally the three customers, employees and healthy business. Mm. And uh, and then I would it, 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 even then it took coaching for usually a few months to say where I start to get into a line of questioning rather than directing and providing answers. And that that line of questioning looks more like coaching. And, right. uh, and then that a little Socratic uh, method there to get, yeah, them, exactly. get yeah. them where they need to go yep. to make and them really think about their choices. Yep. You, yep. Exactly. you spend a certain amount of time about dial this working with the front lines and all of your real life examples are, fr- are from your work experience, which if I'm correct in how I'm reading it is, is largely manufacturing based you know, 77% of our GDP is service sector. So what does working from the front lines in the service sector look like? So if a listener is in the service business and says, well, I can't really, you know, we don't really have a factory floor. We don't really have those kinds of things. How do they roll up their sleeves? How do they, you know, especially in COVID times, people are all distributed. How do they get that presence that uh, esprit de corps that you talk about. Yeah. And, and on services, so I spent the, the last portion of my career in services in the last year is all, all services for small companies and in services pivot to the customer. And so we, um, a lot of professional services, consulting companies have delivery leads, so to speak. And so it's managing customer engagements. That's the, that's where the magic happens. Mm. Go where, go to the point of use, wherever the customer is engaged with your product or service and talk about how, you know, just talk to them directly. How, how's it going for you? You know, what could we do better? What are your priorities for today? What are your pain points? What keeps you up at night? Mm. And, and seeing how we're responsive to those pain points in, uh, in a services business is really important. And, and a lot of times at bigger companies and services, uh, you know, they've got a model and it is what it is, regardless of the customer feedback. And as soon as you stop iterating and evolving around what your customers are telling you, that's when you start to slow down again. And so right. it's, it's talk to, if you're in services, talk to your customers and just listen. And so that's part of what you, when you, you talk about rolling up your sleeve, it's, a, it's actually talking directly to the customers to not, not having somebody else do it for you, but to be that leader who does reach out and actually have those conversations. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. Go, go to the point of use with your customer. If your financial services, go to the, um, you know, the accounting professional that you're, you're work selling to or whoever, and just talk about what they're doing. Yeah. Right. Which I, I also think from a relationship management standpoint, not too bad to have a very senior level executive say, how are we doing? How could right. we be doing better? What's going on? One of the things I love about your book and that we've talked a little bit uh, earlier in our conversation is the importance of caring and connecting, that to be a good leader, you actually need to connect with your team, which means time. 
there's a time factor there. So what do you say to leaders who just say, I don't have the time? Yeah, I'd say you're probably getting 50% at best of the energy out of your team. Hmm. And, you know, there are plenty of studies on employee engagement and, you know, 30% or so of employees are actively disengaged. (laughs) work, right? And a lot of studies that show that. And the reason is, it goes back to you, there's a few people that have said versions of this, but people don't care about what you think until you show how much you care about them. Hmm. I truly believe in that because that's what I feel. If I'm, if I meet a a leader or a stranger for the first time, if, if they're not showing any, any concern or interest in me whatsoever, then I, I probably don't care as much about what they have to say. And so it it all starts with caring. And if you're ever going to unlock that, that last 30 to 50% of engagement in discretionary effort of your team, that's, you you have to get to caring and you have to authentically, you have to really care. You got to spend time, stop, you know, stop focusing on you and even the business for a second and just get to know somebody. And what's going right. on? And it, it means not pushing meetings. It means not being on your phone when somebody's talking to you. It means actually listening to to what they're saying to you. If an employee is in a situation where they are simply not able to connect with the boss, it just it just you're a puzzle piece. It doesn't seem to fit. Should they just should they be looking to work for another manager? Is this a savable situation? <laughs> Yeah. I mean, sometimes there just isn't chemistry and that, and that that's just people. Right. And so mm-hmm. I would also just be honest about that. And, and um, you know, you can still check in and, and uh, just see how people are doing anything that I can do to help, you know, are you any questions on our current initiatives and the, the conversation is probably much shorter, but you can still ask some good questions just to, just to show that, you know, you're trying. It's in, in that case, it's it's like, you know, gifts. It's a it's a matter of the thought behind it. Right. Exactly. So we also spoke a little bit earlier about coaching versus directing. And this is something you you dive into. And a lot of people think that they're coaching when they're actually directing. So what are the key things? I mean, we talked a little bit about asking questions and getting people to get there on their own as being one aspect of coaching. What are some of the other key things that you believe say coach versus direct? Yeah, I would do a a couple other things. I would always ask people what they would do, you know, give me some options and maybe, um, you know, give them some space to go do that. Cause a lot of times that means collaborating with some other people and doing some research. And then one just really simple thing that I, I, I started to get into just to help people grow as, as, you know, as people and as leaders is always come to a meeting with a point of view. Mm. And so know what the meeting is, come in with a point of view, knowing that it may very well be wrong. But I always wanted to hear different points of view. And, and it's the if you go around the, the table, which I did a lot just to hear what everybody thinks, and somebody says, well, I haven't really thought about it. Well, that you, that's just a total missed opportunity. You know, right. and so I, I would always encourage people to have a point of view. And then if you're the, you know, if, if you're the leader acting as a coach, that's just one simple piece of guidance to ask everybody to come prepared with a point of view. You'll get better solutions, more diverse opinions, different perspectives, unco- uncover risk that you wouldn't have uncovered right. anyways. And it helps dev- develop your, your team. Well, it also goes back to our earlier conversation around inclusion. If somebody is pre-prepared, an opinion and a point of view, there's more chance they're going to share it, even if they're 
maybe coming at it from a different perspective. So I think that that's a really useful thing to think about. Now we're closing in on the end of our time and we really only have scratched the surface of everything, but there is something that's current and I think is really relevant to today and also the work you're doing. And that is how to approach the new normal going back to work as pandemic shifts. A lot of employees have a lot of feelings. A lot of senior executives have a lot of feelings about what what they want work to look like. If you're a frontline CEO and you're in that mindset, how do you navigate hybrid, back to office, all remote? How do you navigate that? What's What's the way that you get through that process? It's different for every company and every type of job, but I think it requires a level of clarity beyond what most companies provided before and where we're going and why. And these are the three most important things and and really getting clear on priorities and how that impacts the entire organization so that everybody can get work done uh, in, you know, whether it be virtual or in the office or wherever. And that, that level of clarity oftentimes didn't happen and sometimes didn't need to be because people would go into the office and just fill in the gaps by talking to their colleagues on, hey, what did that person mean by this? Or what are we doing for this over here? And without those hall conversations, it requires a level of clarity and direction and and focused priorities that I think are beyond uh, where we were a few years ago. So that's, I think that probably is the biggest thing. The, The second is being more prepared and intentional about how we communicate, how we engage, and when we do meetings, I think is the other big thing uh, with more people virtual and hybrid. What I noticed is people process very differently. And Mm -hmm. so as we're doing these pop-up meetings and daily check-ins on virtual and and can't read body language because everybody's on on a camera, putting people on the spot doesn't work for many people. And Mm -hmm. that's not their problem. It's that people process differently. I'm very visual. And so in conversations without a whiteboard, you know, I sometimes have to, I'll be drawing something out in front of me to try to process a complex problem. And so be much more intentional about meetings, go in with an agenda, allow people to prepare in their own way so they can process in their own way and be ready to contribute uh, because you don't have that you don't, you don't always have that space together to fill in the gaps. Right. The other thing I was wondering was the decision. There was a, a fair amount of news around some of the financial services firms saying, everybody back to the office because the bosses want them there. And then push back around, you know, look, office work was patterned after the industrial revolution and factory work. And it doesn't necessarily necessitate that. Should we be doing that? So how should a frontline CEO go through the process of deciding what work looks like, how it's structured? Is there, a, is there a conversation that should be taking place or is it a business decision? I, I think it's a conversation. I think we can put some guidelines around that where there's another debate today around how much is operational repetitive work versus project-based work. And I think for all that operational work, the, the work kind of, it, you know, if you have to go run a machine, it, it you know, kind of sets itself in terms of right. what you can do. For that repetitive work, I also think if that can be done remotely, that's a good starting point um, because it, it, you know, it's, 
it, it's the it's a similar activity that can be done over time and it, there's not a lot of change there mm-hmm. for project-based work and anything that requires creativity i do think the to be inclusive i think it requires some face-to-face yeah. it's just how people are built to interact together and so i at a minimum i think hybrid um, mm-hmm. all the way to full-time in the office is, right. uh, is how to approach that just because that it's hard to be inclusive when you don't have everybody in a room and you're trying to create something new and listen to different perspectives and watch the body reaction in the room. I, you said that a couple of times and I couldn't agree more that the issue of reading body language, I also agree with you in terms of visually understanding something. And if you have your whiteboard and you're figuring it out, how if you're in a meeting, other people can see it and they can process along with you. It's a lot harder if you're doing these meetings, um, you know, these remote kind of meetings. It's it's an interesting thing. We've learned a lot about how how we all work. Um, well, thank you so much for spending the time with us to talk about your book. There is so much more in this book than we have just scratched the surface of. The podcast webpage will have a click to purchase link. And thank you so much for spending the time. Yes. Thanks for the time, Gabrielle. Appreciate it. We've reached the end of another episode of Up Next. I'd like to close by thanking my production team at Up Next, my friend, Rob Naughton, the voice artist who recorded our open. And of course, all of you, the members of the audience, thank you. I'll be talking to you again next time right here on Up Next.